Females are more likely to kill someone that they know, but females tend to be a little bit more either responsive, so reactive to a domestic situation, or they're killing for utilitarian purposes. But often it is, you know, someone with whom they are in a close relationship. Megan Sachs, a criminologist and co-host of the Women in Crime podcast, offers insights into the minds of women who murder. Hello, I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs. In this episode of True Crime Reporter, Megan Sachs and I explore what it is that motivates women to kill. In my previous episode on December 13th of 2022, titled A Mother's Pursuit of Justice, The Contract Murder of Dan Markell, I reported that three women are the focus of an eight-year-long murder investigation. Markell, a distinguished law professor at Florida State University, was gunned down by hitmen at his Tallahassee home in 2014. Catherine McMonawa was the go-between for the contract killing. In November of 2022, evidence from an FBI sting helped convict McMonawa. She received a life sentence plus 60 years for hiring her ex-boyfriend, the father of her children, to execute Dan Markell, allegedly so his ex-wife could move the couple's two sons to South Florida. The ex-wife, 34-year-old Wendy Adelson, a fellow law professor, and her mother, Donna Adelson, have been named as unindicted co-conspirators in the alleged plot. According to criminal trial testimony, Catherine McBonawa hired the hitmen at the request of Wendy Adelson's brother, Charlie. She was a girlfriend and dental assistant in his office, and Charlie Adelson has been charged with the murder and is expected to stand trial in 2023. But back to Catherine McMonawa. Was it for love or money? I reached out to Megan Sachs, a criminologist with a Ph.D. who teaches classes on women in crime at Fairleigh Dickinson University in New Jersey. Here's my interview. Megan, will you take us inside the minds of women who commit murder in covering male murderers? You know, I'm curious if you find comparatively that there are significant differences. Yes, Robert, I do find comparatively that there are. Females are more likely to kill someone that they know. Males do as well, but males will also kill people that they do not know who are not partners or you know, maybe for money or for various other reasons. But females tend to be a little bit more either responsive, so reactive to a domestic situation, or they're killing for utilitarian purposes. But often it is, you know, someone with whom they are in a close relationship. In the Markell murder case out of Florida that we've talked about, you've done some of your podcast episodes around that, I believe. We've got three women at the center of the alleged conspiracy, three men, three women. One of them has been prosecuted and convicted, uh, Catherine McBonawa. You know, it's really kind of twisted. She has a, allegedly her boyfriend, who is the, you know, the brother of the ex-wife, apparently gets her to do it. And she hires, of all people, her ex-boyfriend, who she's got kids with. Give me your, from the point of view of the criminologist, what you see there, the motivation. Was it for love or money? For the love of money, probably. <laughs> no, it's There's definitely a utilitarian purpose. 
Catherine Magbanoa. She plays a, a different yet similar role that women can play in crimes when they are in doing crimes in conjunction with males. And what I mean is this. Oftentimes when females commit drug crimes or gang-related crimes, they are doing so in somewhat of a subservient role to males. Um, So usually at the behest of a male that they're getting involved and they have a lesser role and they're not, you know, the primary person involved. It seems that would be the role for Catherine in this crime is that she was, you know, facilitating something for her boyfriend. Um, So she's the facilitator. She's not, you know, going to be a primary aggressor here, although certainly it's an aggressive action. And I think that her motive was more utilitarian. Sure. I think there's an aspect that she wanted to please Charlie Adelson, who was her boyfriend, But I think she also saw the fact that there was a lucrative opportunity. And frankly, she and her ex-boyfriend were struggling to care financially for their children. Well, in my my experience talking to female inmates in the prison system here in Texas, when you really start discussing their crime, it always seemed to me it would come back to a boyfriend, a bad boyfriend. It's like who really, in some sense, talked them into doing it. What's your experience? Very often. That's exactly what I was explaining. The phenomena that when women get caught up in certain crimes, they're often doing so, you know, at the behest of a partner. And I I don't think that's very different here. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, Charlie was necessarily demanding it. He may have suggested it. And maybe Katie said, hey, I know how I can get this done. That, That doesn't mean that she was, you know, not a decision maker per se. It's possible that she was. But from what I understand about his personality is that He could be very pushy, demanding, you know, braggadocious, a lot of qualities that would suggest to me that perhaps he talked her in some level, you know, into this. And for the female offenders, what's missing in their emotional life or personality that, you know, they'd go so far as to to help commit a murder? Well, you know, it. It could be that they are, you know, uh, experiencing some type of trauma. You know, they have been traumatized in some way. It could be that they suffer from personality traits as well, personality disorders, and they could have some antisocial traits. It could be very well or very simply that they are missing that connection with a partner, that they've never had that kind of connection, that they've had some history of abandonment and, and that they are just so... I don't want to say desperate, but so willing to go an extra step so beyond the bounds of what they have done before because they really want to keep the partner that they have. And I've definitely seen that as a theme in in cases involving female offenders. As I reported earlier, prosecutors have named the murder victim's ex-wife, Wendy Adelson, and her mother, Donna, as unindicted co-conspirators. Neither of them, as of December 2022, has been charged with a crime. Megan Sachs gives her criminologist point of view on their personalities. Donna is the matriarch of a very tight-knit family. I think that Donna was very entitled, very controlling, and her end game was, I want to keep my family must be together at all costs. And it doesn't matter what the cost is to anyone else. This is the primary goal. So, she also has a utilitarian purpose, but it's very different. She considers her family the, the foremost important thing in keeping them together. For Wendy, it would be also 
similar, but her problem is that she Dan is her problem. Her primary problem is she can't do what she wants to do because Dan is the obstacle in her way. And all she wants to do is move back, be near her family, raise her boys without Dan. They don't want him in the picture. I will say that's something that I think Donna and Wendy shared in common was that neither of them want Dan in the picture pretty much at all. But here's a a law professor, educated. Mm -hmm. It's an extreme way to get Dan out of the picture rather than try and continue to try the court system. What do you think happens? It certainly is. We see this with what we would tend to think of. You look at them and go, these are ordinary people. They don't have histories of violence. They don't have criminal backgrounds. What drives ordinary people to do extraordinary things? And, you know, what happens is it's a combination. There's a desperation here for sure. There's a protection element. So I believe that Wendy's parents and her brother were very overprotective to the point of coddling Wendy. And I think Wendy was very good at manipulating the attention. And they saw her in real distress. And I think they saw Dan as enemy number one. And they tried to do things the right way through the courts. And I think, you know, what happened was Wendy went through the courts and tried to relocate. And I think she and her family were all shocked when the courts, the judge said, no, you know, you're you're staying here. You're not taking your children away from their father. This is a 50 50 joint situation. I believe that this family thought that they would get a yes no matter what. And I think they were very shocked. And so when they couldn't when they didn't have any other legal recourse, um, I think this is where they start to go, you know, off the or awry, I would say. Well, this is a, a well-heeled family with political oh, yeah. connections. Right. Do you think it was a case that they were just always used to getting their way and we're going to get our way? 100 percent. Yeah, I have, I would agree with that 100 percent. I also I think they're very entitled. Um, and so, yeah, I, thought, I think they thought they would get their way. I think they were shocked when they didn't. And I think they felt entitled to get their way no matter what. And I think they simply saw Dan as not this great father who adored his children and who was an upstanding, respected citizen. And, you know, not for all the wonderful things that he really was, but they just saw him as the obstacle to their end goal. Nothing more. You have had an opportunity to see the tape and it, they're on YouTube of the initial police questioning of Wendy. And then right. later this month in November, her testimony in court. Contrast those two for me and the court testimony she's put together and, you know, a sense narcissistic, but give me the point, your view from as a criminologist, what you see. Sure. So in the interrogation, this is when the police initially brought uh, Wendy in for questioning. Dan had just been murdered. They bring her in and they are informing her of the murder. And so we presume that she knows nothing about it. She immediately goes hysterical. Um, you know, crying, oh, my God, how could this happen? You know, we don't like to judge people necessarily by their affect. But right. I will tell you that, you know, you could have judged her either way. If she said nothing, if she was cold, we would have said she's cold. In this case, I found her to be a little over hysterical, very reactionary immediately. She talked a lot in this interrogation, too much so, I would say. She offered information that was beyond probably the scope of what she should Um I would think at times just a little uncomfortable. She did cooperate, though, for, you know, she sat there for something like eight hours. Megan, during that interrogation, there there's a moment when she tries to throw her ex-boyfriend 
under the bus and cast blame on him, shift the focus to him. What'd you make of that? I noticed the same exact thing. I thought it was, you know, in my observation, it it appeared to me that she was trying to divert attention from her family or herself, possibly, and, you know, point to someone, well, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who this, would do this, but he was really protective of me and he really didn't want to see me get my feelings hurt. I thought it was very manipulative, if you ask me, um, is my opinion. Now, in recently, she testifies in court under oath, and um, it, I thought it was slick. What was you, what did you read between the lines? I'm just curious. Wh- why did you think it was slick? Because she seems to testify strongly. She's composed. She gives answers, yes. solid answers. She doesn't She's lose her composure. Quaffed. Doesn't you know? Does not lose her composure. Uh, you know, I, I've described her as, you know, sort of the stereotypical girl next door. Right. That it, a very different presentation, of course, from the interrogation when she comes in. Well, sure. You know, she's had time to prepare for trial. Yes. And my sense as a reporter, I, I had a feeling there was a lot of preparation. Oh, yeah. In that. Yeah. The story, oh. getting the story together. How about you? Oh, yeah. I mean, her testimony, I agree with you. She comes across as, you know, she's intelligent. She's attractive. She's very composed. She seems cooperative. You know, I think that she she reads or she looks ideal. However, I thought um, similar to her interrogation, despite the fact that her composure is much different, I still thought she tended to either over answer some questions or provide details on questions that would maybe point towards her or her family, any involvement. There were certain questions and I couldn't recall exactly which ones. I just know when I watched it, when it was a simple, straightforward question that had nothing to do with, um, you know, the murder, whether it was about, you know, when they when she met Dan, when they married, that kind of thing. Very yes or no. When there's a question that should be yes or no, but might implicate her or her family in some way in the involvement, very long, much more long-winded answers. Well, let me think. That might have been around the time where I had this going on, so perhaps it could be, or her memory is a little fuzzier for dates, times, and other things. So I did feel, I did perceive a difference in her answering in certain questions. And if we go back to her interrogation, when it starts to run long, I mean, an eight-hour interrogation, you would have thought a law professor at some point would have said, I need legal counsel. Right. And I don't know if that's – I would expect a law professor to maybe even ask immediately from what they know. Right. Um, Yeah. So, I'm – you know, and then you wonder, well, is is it a – yeah, I want to look like I'm cooperative. I have nothing to hide. You could look at that either way. You could look at that as, you know, it depends on what you interpret. Some interpret that. I've read some people say, look, she's cl- clearly she was innocent or she wasn't involved because she cooperated for eight hours. And innocent people are the ones who speak to the police without a lawyer. And she's a lawyer. Or you could look at it this way. She feels so airtight. In what she's done, um, in her alibi and her planning, you know, if she's involved, and I'm just saying if she's involved, that she doesn't need that. She's going to show them she can be the most cooperative, grieving widow that she could possibly be. So I think you can interpret it depending on probably which camp you're in, thinking that Wendy was not involved in the plot to kill Dan or thinking she was. 
Let's move on to another type of murder, and that's the love triangle. Sure. Uh, there's one here in Austin involving a cyclist, been very high profile. What have you seen becomes the motivating factor in, in, in for a woman to decide I'm going to murder the other woman in, in the cases you've looked at? Right. It's just become such an obsession. They think that the only obstacle, the only reason that they can't be with a person is, you know, the object of their affection is because there is one other person standing in the way. And if that person was not here, if that person was just gone, then there would be no, absolutely no more obstacles and they would live happily ever after. It's typically a distortion that follows an obsession. So when they call them love triangles, yeah, I understand it, but it's more of an obsessive triangle is what I would call it. And and what about the male in the trio here? Do you, do you find in these cases they've played a role? Oh, sure. The role they've played, first of all, is being deceptive. And let me point out that there are cases where it, it's, you know, not just a male. It could be a female that's the object of the obsession. But when we talk about cases where there are males, you know, they've been highly deceptive males who are leading, you know, two different lives. They're lying. They're manipulating. And even if they don't mean to, they're leading, you know, this per you know, Sometimes they intentionally mean to leave them on. They, they will tell lies about, you know, leaving their spouse. Oh, we're going to be together. And so they're only encouraging that behavior and luring them deeper into this false belief that there's really going to be, you know, um, the two of them kind of sailing off into the sunset. And now that doesn't mean that they're responsible for murder. But when we talk about in criminology, we don't talk about victim blaming, but we talk about victim precipitation. There's roles that people play that a victim can play or someone else can play in precipitating certain events. And so the males often do unwittingly play that role with their actions. Well, how about other factors you see in the love triangle murders and how common is this? to see women involved in this type of murder. How common is it? Well, it's a rare event still, just so you know. Uh, you know, murder is a rare event. Mm-hmm. Women commit less murders than males do. Sure. Um, I'd still say this is more on the rarer side, even for women. When they do commit homicides, it's usually against their partner and not against, okay. you know, their partner's other partner. So this is definitely a rare event. And a lot of these women, you should understand, Not that there are a lot in general, but they don't have backgrounds of criminal history or crimes. These were otherwise very, quote, you know, normal, law abiding, respectful people who were brought to the extreme, which is a very, you know, it makes it unique and makes us want to understand that even more. How does a normal person go to such abnormal lengths to obtain something that some of us don't even see as being that valuable, right? We might look at this person and say, hey, you you value this person so much, the one who's cheating on you, cheating on a spouse. What do you think is going to happen when it's when, you know, you're going to be the next person, you know, standing in someone else's shoes? So I just wanted to point that part out. Yeah. And indeed, in this case, the woman that's being cheated upon, her friend's come forward to the police and they describe events of she's escalating. The anger is growing. So you could see that going on. And then, you know, you're just like, you're all intelligent. I mean, how do you not have the cognitive skills to say, no, I'm not going to do this? Because it's not cognitive. Even if you have the skills, it's just, it's so driven by anger 
It's it's mm-hmm. too emotionally driven. And that's why even in our field, we talk about crimes that can be deterred. Well, you can deter instrumental crimes so or property crimes, crimes that are less emotional or planned or, you know, somewhat utilitarian. But you cannot deter to the same level um, what we call expressive crimes. And those are crimes of anger and of passion. They are very hard to deter, even when you have a seemingly rational person because they're driven by something much deeper than logic or skill or cognition. And am I correct to understand that most murders involving women, it's the woman directing her anger and killing the significant other? Well, yes, they usually kill a significant other when they are killing or it could be a child. Women are more likely to kill someone they know. When it's a significant other, though, yes, it's either anger or in response to uh, abuse. Mm -hmm. There's three Mm -hmm. primary purposes. When a female kills, let's say, her male partner, um, it would either be in response, you know, a a very, yes, an anger, a reaction. It would be more typically because she's in an abusive situation and it's a response to abuse. And sometimes, which is more atypical, but it would be utilitarian purpose for purposes of, let's say, money or, you know, to relate that back to Wendy Markell to be able to obtain a certain goal, to be able to move, to be able to, you know, there's some purpose out of it and it's not uh, an impassioned response. So let's move to um, other types of crimes okay. uh, that are not homicide. Mm-hmm. How, wh- what do you see as the differentiating factors between men and women? Males, uh, females and males do tend to get involved in crimes for many of the same reasons. They are, you know, crimes of survival. They you have they come from impoverished backgrounds and, you know, it's kind of out of necessity. What I can tell you the difference in the profiles is that females tend to have much higher levels of victimization in terms of they come from abusive situations, even more so than their male counterparts. And they have a higher degree of mental illness and probably issues with substance abuse. Now, you'll find those in males as well, just to be clear. Females commit vastly less crime. So females are responsible for about 15% of all crime. So they're underrepresented when it comes to their male counterparts. However, they are overrepresented in specific crimes. So where you're going to see females committing crimes, usually in drug crimes, thefts or property crimes as well and sex work and so i'd say that's the difference between females and males the crimes that they are committing they're usually crimes of survival and oftentimes you know they are still committed uh, at some level and a a lower level that you know there there are males involved in those crimes as well but females are playing a lesser role you know we conducted a poll of our listenership with a large percentage of which is women. And we ask, would you rather hear episodes about men who kill their significant other or girlfriend or women who kill their significant other or boyfriend? And it was overwhelmingly, uh, we want to hear those cases of women who are killing the significant other. And it kind of made me pause to think about guys. Maybe are you sleeping with one eye open? You know, what, (laughs) what do you think that fascination is? 
I think the fascination is that we expect males to commit violent crimes. We're not shocked when males commit violent crimes. Mm-hmm. That It conforms to gender norms. And I'm not saying we expect males to be killers, but we tend to expect them to be more violent or more aggressive. And so I don't think it's as shocking when a male commits a violent crime. However, because of the way we view females as more maternal, more socialized, more demure, I think the socialization of females tends to lead us to be more shocked when females commit violent crimes and especially murder. And especially we judge females a lot more based on their appearance. So when you're looking at a certain female, you know, there was uh, Susan Wright. They called her the blue eyed butcher. And she was this very, you know, sort of petite, demure, blonde, blue eyed, you know, she just looked a certain way and and she had stabbed her husband so many times and nobody could reconcile that. You can reconcile a lot of times when you see a male. They might look the part. But a lot of the females who commit these crimes, not only are they not expected to because we just don't expect females to, but then you look at them and it's very shocking, like the Jodi Arias effect. People looked at Jodi Arias and thought there's no way this woman could have committed this heinous crime based on what we see on the outside. So you think it's more shocking? You know, it's also very rare to come across women that are serial killers. Yes. Is it because on the, most serial killers are motivated by sexual sadism? It's sex is at the root of it and power. Yes, for males, it is usually sexually motivated, power control motivated. But there's a sexual gratification element that pertains to males. For females, when they murder, if they're serial killers, usually it's utilitarian. And it's going to be for a reason, for a purpose, for money, usually. Very, very different motivations between males and females. When males or when females partner up with males and become team sort of serial killers, it's usually at the behest of a male. And they're usually carrying out the male's desires. So entirely different motivations. And yes, it is very rare for females. I mean, serial killing is a rare event in itself, but of course, much rarer for females to offend in that way. Megan, give me your analysis of why you think true crime is so, so popular. You know, I'm, I'm in the television world doing it. It's incredible how popular it is. We certainly see it in, in podcasts. If you go to the bookstore on Amazon, it dominates the shelves. What do you think it is? Because, you know, I've looked back at the Penny Dreadfuls from Victorian England and mm-hmm. wow, was it, you know, 30,000 people would show up for a hanging. Yeah. Do you think are they are are we wondering is is there something inside of me that could do that or just oh sure there's many different aspects and one of them is we are it's kind of like a Howard Stern phenomenon whereby we want we want to see the shock of what's going to happen like we just can't help but look right um, we know it's wrong but we just deeply want to know I think there is. A part of us that likes to look at these situations and say, what would I do if it was me? What would I do differently? So we're looking at this person. This could have been me, but here's why it's not going to. So almost like a prevention or here's how I wouldn't become this kind of involved in this situation. So, you know, there's like a need to look but separate oneself from that. I think there is the armchair detective kind of aspect whereby people are very interested in what can I learn and what can I solve and can I help figure out? Can I be a part of this? Um, but I also think there's a part of people that look and and do see, you know, identify with this darker side. What makes me different than this person? Am I capable of this kind of thing? True crime allows us a safe space to explore psychology, darkness, danger, but from a very comfortable place because we're just on the outside looking in. 
Yeah, I think at times you wonder, is there someone around me in the uh, filling up their car with gas or standing in the line at the grocery store or shopping that is, is the monster amongst us? I mean, many of these stories are fables in a way, right? And yes, we do look for the monster. It's interesting that we're always looking for the outside monster, the stranger danger, right? When really you're more in danger by someone you know in most situations. However, I will tell you, even just by occupational hazard, I I know the statistics, I know the realities, and I still, because of my work and how engrossed I am, I do the same thing. I check my car all the time. You know, when I used to walk in through the door, I checked behind me. I'm, I'm always sort of aware or concerned. <laughs> Could I be next? And I know the reality is I probably won't be. But I think there's definitely concern. And now with probably the advent of so much true crime everywhere, it's so, I would say, saturated in documentaries and television shows. If you watch that much true crime, you become that engrossed in it. You're going to think you're going to have a false perception, I would say, that you're in danger. It would be hard not to. And what's always struck me about covering serial killers, once you see their mugshots, that's when, you know, oh, they're a monster. They're so scary. But I see the pictures of when they're in their civilian clothing and the jobs and all. And they're just kind of average. They don't stand out at all. Most of them don't. We need to believe that they're monsters, though. It's what helps, you know, helps us. If we know that there's monsters and we can identify them, then we can identify them. You can spot them. But it's way scarier. It's way, way more terrifying to think that the person you're standing next to, you know, as Ann Rule had said, the stranger beside me is, you know, the monster who looks just like everyone else. That's a way more terrifying fact. And having monsters and and stories about them helps us escape that fear a little bit. What do you tell your students about safety? You know, I explore safety through, you know, exploring the causes of crime. So what what causes crime? We explore victimization patterns. So I think they learn organically what might actually put them at risk, but what might not. So it's not so much that I also tell them my students or explain what to do uh, to avoid crime, but I also debunk the myths that they might hold about crime, because I think a lot of them come in with so many misconceptions based on the idea, again, of stranger danger and what the media purports. So I think that mo- more importantly, I just try to inform them about the realities of crime and let them make their own decisions. OK, Megan, yeah, you want to wrap up with any closing advice or insight for us here? <laughs> Who am I giving advice to? Our listeners, <laughs> the world. <laughs> yeah, I think I think my closing advice would be it's. True crime is certainly interesting in its entertainment, but be careful what you consume. Try to consume things that are, you know, more factual and try to just explore a little bit deeper. Like just try to explore the the truths and not all of the myths. Don't believe everything that you hear just because it's salacious. Just keep, you know, keep informed, keep educated, I would say, in a way, and try to consume content that will inform, you know, smart decisions and, and the realities reflected in the world of crime. Yeah, I guess, you know, one of the things that's concerned me when you look at the how people will turn out these pulp uh, editions of a crime, quick publish, or even some of the podcasts, there's not any sensitivity to victims' families no. and the hurt. 
in the suffering they go through. No, there's not a lot of that. Um, it's one of the things that my co-host and I try to be very cognizant about and try to be very respectful about. And that's what I mean about consuming also media. Choose the media you consume based on some integrity. I don't choose to consume true crime content that does treat victims disrespectfully or that pokes fun at this kind of phenomena or makes fun of violent crimes. I don't think that's responsible and it's not what I choose to consume. So that's kind of what I meant as well. Think about that. Think about what you would want to consume and how you would feel if it was someone in your family and just try to go with people who are you know, more balanced and have kind of an ethical delivery of this information. What was it that both you and your co-host, that you decided to become criminologist. What was appealing about that? For my co-host, she was always interested in issues con- about social justice. She just had a very strong sense from an early age about social injustice. And she also was interested in mental health. And I think those kind of naturally led her down a path of being interested in, in the criminal justice system. For me, I actually, uh, I'm telling you, I probably consumed too much crime content when I was younger and found it so fascinating. And I thought that I was really interested in criminal law. And I was for a while until I worked in the field with as a paralegal for a couple of years with lawyers and then decided ah, criminal law is not for me. But I was always so interested in the criminal justice system. And I couldn't tell you exactly why it was just it spoke to me a passion in a way like, you know, playing an instrument might speak to someone else. And so when I worked in the criminal justice field, I began to see how flawed it was. And then I became even more passionate about getting out there and educating people on the realities of the system and, you know, trying to be part of, you know, positive change at some point. And I I hope that's what will happen. Is there a change you would like to see in how women are handled in the criminal justice system? Yes, of course. I would aim for more gender responsive programming in terms of recognizing that most women behind bars are mothers. Most are victims. Most have substantial issues or barriers to reentry. And these issues can't be swept under the rug. They have to be addressed. They have to be addressed early on. So I think we could do a lot more to be much more mindful of the differences between males and females. Males and females don't need equal treatment. Sure, you shouldn't treat one better than the other, but there's different programs and services that are going to help males and females. But frankly, we could be doing it better with males as well. So I could go on and on about everything we do wrong in the in prison and treatment and, and rehabilitation or lack thereof. But that would probably be a whole nother podcast. <laughs> yes. When I look at the sprawling Texas prison system, I often say that is a monument to a failed education, public education system in this state. I would have to agree with that. I mean, we definitely would look at early education, lack thereof, as a root cause. And then the problem is returning back to society without that proper education. So just never having received the proper tools is makes it more likely that people are going to fail. We're setting people up for failure for the most part. Well, Megan, that's the last word. Thank you so much for coming on the True Crime Reporter podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Robert. I appreciate it. True Crime Reporter is written by me, Robert Riggs. It is produced and researched by Siler Burr. You can read more about our team on our website at truecrimereporter.com. And while you're there, please sign up to join our true crime community. It's free. There's a red box on every page to receive our free email updates with behind-the-scenes information. And you can email your suggestions to fan at truecrimereporter.com. I read all of them. 
This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.